Hello everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with Tom Salmon, the podcast that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guests on this week's episode are Noel Smith and Fergus Grady, who directed and produced their debut documentary feature film, Camino Skies, which tells the story of six strangers walking the 800-kilometer Camino Santiago to overcome personal trauma and tragedy. We jumped into Noel and Fergus's experience casting the six strangers walking the Camino, capturing their dramatic ups and downs along the trail, and the technical and physical challenges that they faced making their first award-winning documentary film. So, if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam, or sitting behind a desk at work, I hope you enjoy my interview with Noel and Fergus. Can you introduce yourselves to the listeners? Who are you and what kind of film and television work do you do? My name's Noel Smith. I'm a uh, director for Camino Skies. I was the co-director, co-producer and cinematographer. I make observational documentaries. Uh, I'm Fergus Grady. I grew up in New Zealand. I reside in Melbourne. I've been working in the film industry for 15 years, starting out as a production sound practitioner and working my way up into distribution and now as a producer and film director. Um, okay, so Camino Skies is your debut docu- uh, documentary film, which is released on the 8th of May in the UK on Curzon Home Cinema and other streaming platforms. So what's the film about and why did you want to make it? The film is about uh, life, love and, and loss, and it's set against the backdrop of the Camino de Santiago. So we, we followed six... Uh, New Zealanders and Australians all all dealing with grief in in one way or another um, as they undertook the the Camino de Santiago. And I guess going into it, um, you know, there's all sorts of historical and religious background about the Camino de Santiago, but we were most interested in the stories of of people and, and why they do it. And I first heard of the Camino about 10 years ago when, mm-hmm. when my wife walked it. And at that point, um, she, she'd been going through a lot in her life. And, and so she, she, she's always told these stories about these incredible moments on the Camino and how much it changed her. And, and then from there, I sort of hadn't really thought about it at all. And then Fergus one day said, what, you know, what do you think about doing a film on the Camino? And, and so we started looking into it and the more we, researched it uh, we just realized that it's it was an incredible opportunity to find some really amazing stories people driven stories and um, you know thousands of people walk it every, every year and and uh, and continue to go back most people many people do it more than once and, and mm. make it a regular thing and it's sort of that question of what what draws people to do something like that, where it where it is quite challenging physically and mentally, and and you know you're sharing bunk accommodation with with complete strangers, and it's yeah, it's it's definitely not luxurious. So the question was always what what draws people to do this? Um, and what for you, um, Fergus, was the sort of driving force for you to sort of get involved with this project? I guess Noel and I had spent a number of years. Um, developing projects um, and trying to get funding and finance from local government, private investment. Um, 
and we got to the point where we had an idea and we had the resources in terms of our own skill set. Noel was a cinematographer and me as a sound recordist and sharing co-directed and co-producing duties we knew we mm. could at least get this to a, to a rough cut where we could bring in some expertise. Um, and we just booked flights to Spain and found six subjects and off we went. I mean, I'll confess, um, I hadn't heard of the Camino Santiago before. I mean, is it a particularly well-known walk slash trek in uh, New Zealand and Australia? Per capita, um, New Zealand and Australia would have some of the most, um, the highest pilgrims out of any country in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what it is. Um, I think it's one of physical challenge. So for most Kiwis and Aussies, they like the outdoors and they like Mm -hmm. hiking. Um, But I also think because it's, Spain is exactly the opposite end of the world from New Zealand. Mm. Um, it is a challenge to go over there for 40 days and complete the whole thing at, in, at once, um, whereas a lot of the Brits and the Irish that we met um, yeah. may, may attempt to do the Camino over seven or eight years or over a number of bank holidays and, and, and do it that way. So for a lot uh. of the Kiwis and Aussies, they spend you know a, a month and a half Whereas, whereas a lot of the Europeans we met will, will break it up um, and do different mm. sections over a number of years. Um, for you, were there any sort of films you looked to as inspiration before you set out making your own documentary on a subject? I think we tried to stay away from, I guess, over-researching right. both, both the subject and the reference um, because, yeah, I... I think it over over researching can kind of lead to, you know, you you, you putting putting your own thoughts and ideas onto the subjects mm-hmm. instead of just following them and see where it leads. And 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 same goes for the Camino. Like we're we're by no means experts on on the Camino. Um, you know, partly because we we didn't want to over research it. We didn't want it to become a tourist film because we knew this was a famous thing and we need right. to get that. It was more about if it's important to our subjects, we'll film it or we'll be there. But if, if not, you know, it's, it's irrelevant to their stories. And, um, yeah, so I don't, I didn't really have any reference for the film. Fergus, I don't know. Did you? Well, the thing was, uh, Tom, we met the majority of our subjects in Spain, right. um, so we didn't actually get to do any camera tests um, with them before we left. So we also didn't really have a form or a, or a concept in mind. We knew it would be a journey, mm. and we didn't know if it would be a, a complete journey, whether whether everyone would finish it. And um, we were just open to to any narrative that that came across our path. And and and. The fly-in-the-wall observational style yeah. um, is truly how it was. I mean, we, we followed either two or three subjects every day as they walked the 20, 20, 20 to 25 kilometres, um, and we just basically rolled up on everything. So at the end of it, when we got back to Australia, we had hundreds of hours of footage, mm. and, and we really worked out the, the structure and the narrative in the edit. Um, and the film's opening opens on Sue Morris. It's a 70-year-old divorcee who's got scoliosis and she's in a state of near collapse in a hostel. And I just wondered when you captured that very raw and human moment, were you like, okay, when you saw that, this is our opening? No, I, I think 
at that point when we captured stuff, you know, things would just happen and, right. and we would just, we knew it would be a key scene, absolutely, but we didn't know, we weren't thinking about the edit at that point in it. And um, it wasn't until the edit when we started playing around with different ideas and our, we, we had an incredible editor, Ramon Watkins, who, who helped us, was integral to the film and, and just had so many great ideas. He, he comes from a writing background and um, so he, he really, you know, helped us make the film what it was. I also captured um, a number of breakdowns of Sue's breakdown particularly. Mm-hmm. And when we were filming them, they were all just obstacles in her journey that, that we were, you know, willing her and hoping that she would be able to push through. So mm. the whole 40 or 37 days walking with Sue was, was a test after test for her. So at the time in the opening scene, um, it was just one test and we were hoping that she would be able to push through and, and she did. She was up early the next day and, and a couple of interviews, um, which are sort of non-linear, um, sort of represent mm. The, 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 the strength that Sue has mentally and obviously pushing through um, with, with her scoliosis. So The thing about sort of Sue and watching the documentary, she's in excruciating agony and she suffers from arthritis as well and her hands are sort of like swelling up. I mean, sort of filming her because she's very, from my perspective, watching the documentary, she was very good at dealing and managing with that, with that really like chronic sort of like pain. But from your experience, I mean, how tough was it to watch her go sort of like through that to be with her to sort of um for sort of 30 or 40 or so days yeah it, it was extremely tough we and and you know we can only show so much of it in the film but essentially that that was sue every day every morning she'd wake up in pain and it it was just a case of getting outside and on the road and start walking and warm up and and but it was it was amazing and painful. I think Fergus says it at the start off camera in the film, but um, it's it's painful watching you in pain, Sue. Mm. And and it was every every single day we'd we'd see it. But also so inspirational because she she would get up and again and again and just keep going. And just following on from that question, so you follow six strangers from New Zealand who are walking the Camino Santiago. How did you meet them, and how hard was it to convince them to be a part of the documentary? So there were four Kiwis. So um, we've got the two gentlemen, Mark and Terry, who right. are re- related through Mark's um, wife and Terry's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they came about through an article that Terry had been interviewed for um, about um, Terry's granddaughter, so Mark's stepdaughter, who mm-hmm. passed away, unfortunately. So... Uh, they were known to me, and I reached out to them. Um, Julie um, from Christchurch in New Zealand was um, was all signed up to go on a tour, or at least booked through a tour company, um, where where the where the tour guide had mentioned her um, recent loss. Uh, not to give away too many spoilers, mm-hmm. um, so she was a, a miraculous. Um, addition to the team and came in quite late. Um, and Cheryl, who's South African-born Kiwi, um, was also in, a, in addition um, quite late in the piece. But 
the Australian women, um, uh, Claude and Sue, are sort of prominent um, figures in the Australian Camino community. So they moderate the Facebook page, oh, okay. organise organize meet-up groups in the cities that they live in, Perth and Brisbane. So, um, yeah, they all came together from different parts of Australia and New Zealand and, and there was a bit of an Anzac spirit, you know, the, the camaraderie and the rivalry was quite fun, especially with the boys. And we see that humour, hopefully, if uh, the, your audience uh, enjoy it. We certainly enjoyed mm. um, walking with them. I was just thinking on a practical level, I mean, how, when you flew over there and you had these sort of six, six sort of subjects, I mean, how did you get the film insured? Because as you sort of mentioned before, it wasn't a given that any of these people that you were following would actually make it to the end? Yeah, no, that that's that's right. We were prepared that people were going to drop out. And, um, and I guess that if that had have happened, that would have just been a part of their story. So we, right. and it's, I think it's, I guess it's about being flexible enough to let go of your own ideas of, well, this is the ending we want, which, you know, going into it, our ending was we wanted to see everyone arrive together, but, um, and then reality comes along and things change. And I, I think as documentary filmmakers, you just have to be prepared for that to change and, and just go with whatever happens and be really flexible. Sort of thinking about that, in terms of you followed sort of Sue, Mark and Terry and Claudia and Julian, Cheryl pretty sort of closely as they walked along. I mean, do you think walking for them was the best medicine in terms of what they were going through? I think they intended to walk through their issues. Mm. I'm not sure in terms of the medicine being the walking or the remedy being the the finishing of the of the Camino Frances, which is the French way which we walked. Right. Um, and I'm sure some of them had had crises of their own along the way, which were sort of added to their own um, inner turmoil. But I think what they all got out of it was a collective experience that was shared um, as an achievement that they were all able to sort of almost walk in together. We see the four, well, not to spoil it, but, you know, we all see them arrive into Santiago. But, yeah. Um, the, the main thing for them was that they were able to celebrate their their achievements together. Um, mm. And there were some moments in the film which you, you, you can laugh at, but it was quite tense at times. Mm. But I think ultimately um, when we catch up on Facebook or Skype, it's, it's, it's great. Everyone can joke around, and but it, there's a really sense of you know, a team, a, a collective um, achievement that, that, we all, that we all were able to look back on as, as fond memories. I think going into it, um, and one of the reasons we thought the Camino would be such an incredible place to find and show and tell really interesting stories was um, was because walking, I, I, I totally believe that walking has incredible healing, uh, you know, gives incredible benefits uh, and whether that's the physical aspect of it or more the, the meditative aspect of it where people, because a lot of the time you're just walking on your own, um, like there's different sections of the Camino that get quite busy, but a lot of the days people would just be on their own, in their own head, in their own thoughts, mm. um, working through that. And then you might come across another person or another group and 
you know, you can go from complete strangers to best of friends in the next hour because you've just spent an incredible hour just bonding over shared stories and shared yeah. experience. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think there is something very healing about walking. How did you, I mean, you do see it in the documentary film, but how, from your perspective, did you, from when they started to when they finished, I mean, how did you see the sort of subjects sort of like change sort of physically and mentally as you sort of like filmed them? I think, I think for the veterans, so Sue, Terry and Claude had walked it multiple times. Um, it was about the, the group and the, and the dynamic of, of the group and them leading us. Um, because it was Noel and I, our first time. Um, but for someone like Julie, who had, you know, brought, um, you know, the physical um, memory of, of her loved ones as mm. well as the, the, the mental pain, to watch her release the grief um, that she'd been carrying um, in various parts of the Camino um, and then obviously in the last scene um, it was quite interesting because she's such a determined um, driven woman and is a clinical psychologist in her job to watch her deal with grief and to to walk through grief um, was quite yeah we didn't really know when she was going to break down but, mm. but it wasn't really until three quarters through or at the end that she was able to to let go a little bit. I mean, obviously you can't, you can't let go of grief, but she let yeah. go um, certainly about three quarters through in one of the scenes that we see. And I think I think everybody changed in very different ways over the course of the, the journey. Like Mark, um, Mark was, was definitely not a, a religious man, but there's mm -hmm. a moment in the film where, where he... He has quite a spiritual moment, or a couple of moments actually. So, I think for Mark, came away from the walk with with some definitely some some new ideas around religion mm. um, that he didn't have before, and and for Sue as well. Like there's there was the physical aspect and the achievement of, of getting through every day, but but also and not to give away maybe a spoiler alert, but, um, you know, she, she had a lot of emotional uh, baggage that maybe she'd been holding on to and towards the end of the film she mm. is able to, well, feel comfortable enough to let that go. And there are, I mean, there are lighter moments in the documentary. There's a few moments where you captured the walkers playing on swings like drunk teenagers, and I just wondered what you thought that says about sort of ageing and the playfulness of the human spirit as well. I don't think it changes at all I, th I think different age groups see other age groups differently like you you think that um you know i'm nothing like them or they're nothing like me but then you see moments like that and you realize that could be you know that could be children on a swing or that could be drunk teenagers on a swing or or whatever and and so it you know i, I love I, that's one of my favorite moments in the film and i love those moments because it it's those sort of moments that you you know you just see that connection amongst mm. humanity yeah i think we all behaved like children at some point <laughs> in the walk uh whether it was you know throwing our toys or you know after a few drinks um 
you know, jumping on the swing. So we, we definitely got to know each other very well. Um, we also just sort of touched on it briefly, but I just wanted to sort of like jump into, um, there's one point where Mark is struggling to walk up a rocky hillside in the pouring rain and this dog shows up and it spurs him on to keep going. And he later says that he feels the dog was sent from his daughter, Maddie, who sadly passed away and feels like this was a moment from God. And from your experience, how powerful is attaching a specific meaning to an event in the grieving process? Yeah, I, 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 can't, I can't speak to how important it is, but I, I, I definitely think it's a common a common thing and even julie says it in the film and people working their way through grief often find little uh symbolism in in different things and and so mark had this moment with this stray dog that was kind of um, pushing him on and and i know julie would see heart stones and butterflies everywhere and they were all sort of memories from from people that they'd lost and and so uh yeah so i think i think people do definitely find symbolism where they where they need it and i think mark teaches on you know between spirituality and religion um I think it was the particular thing you talk about, Tom, is quite profound, and it actually touched everyone that day. Um, I'm not saying it was just Mark who had that solo experience. I mean, that dog, uh, the reason why we were able to capture that dog was because it followed Mark, and then it followed Noel as he came in um, shortly after Mark. So um, it's quite an emotional scene because we, we, we... we had the same experience with the dog um, and we were just able to luckily marry Mark's voiceover um, with with the vision of, of the dog at the top of the rocky climb. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's really, um, yeah, that's really so interesting. We, we should expand on that. Yeah, we we didn't actually capture that all at the same time as as Mark. I, I was maybe a couple of, couple of hours behind Mark at that point and came across the same dog and I, I just wanted to film it because it was such an, a, just a beautiful moment with the rain and the bad weather. And, and here's this stray dog that was sort of doing circles around me. And, um, yeah, didn't, didn't know how it was, would it, didn't know how it would be used in the film. But then later when we got into the edit or, or later on when, when Mark was uh, telling us this story about this dog, we, you know, we clicked. It was the same dog. And, and yeah, just amazing you know mm. moments like that where you capture stuff by chance and and it all comes together and just sort of touching upon that in terms of your own sort of like personal growth in the documentary i wonder if there's i just wonder when you were doing this for 40 days because it was the first time walking camino was there any particular sort of like things in the back of your mind that you were sort of like walking um through yourself to a i guess like to a similar or lesser uh, degree than what the subjects were kind of going through was there anything that came up for you that you had a chance to deal with, should we say? It was really hard for us, I think, because because we were such a small crew doing everything ourselves. Like our our days were just nonstop mm. work, basically. So it, it, yeah, we didn't we didn't. I think we'd need to do the Camino ourselves again um, to get that Camino experience, because I think, you know, we'd, we'd wake up 
before sunrise and we'd be out filming in the nice light as everyone walked off and then we'd follow people all through the day and then we'd get in in the afternoon and continue filming people and then, you know, eventually start copying footage over to hard drives mm. and, you know, our days wouldn't wrap up until about 12 and then we'd wake up again and do it all over again every day for 40 days. So, yeah, we it, it's... Yeah, I don't. I don't know if we got the true communal right. experience. I don't know, Fergus. Did you? Work yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the same boat, and uh, like, like to deflect to uh, the subjects on this question. I guess as first-time filmmakers, um, yeah, we put pressure on ourselves. But um, I mean, the main pressure for me was the financial commitment, um, having sort of spent four years. Uh, raising the finance mm. to self-fund the film. Um, you obviously don't want it just to be seen by friends and family. You want it to be um, seen by as, as many people as possible. So for us um, as, as filmmakers, but also as financiers in the film, yeah. um, there was the financial pressure. Um, but but thinking about it now the, and reflecting on the experience, it was it was fantastic. It was the best working holiday you could you could have, right? I mean, you have mm. best friends like Noel and I are, and then you have new friends like the six on camera, and then we had we were very lucky to have our production manager Phoebe Curran um, join us from the UK. So she she came in fresh, and she walked with us the whole way. Mm. I even left her I left her with the sound gear. I had to duck off for a, for another work trip to France for a week and left the guys right. to, to man um, everything as a two-person crew for, for, for about eight days. So, yeah, there were some interesting times, oh. and, and I'm sure Noel, Noel and Phoebe um, worked their asses off in that, in that week that I was away. Each day, was there a particular amount of um, filming that you needed to get done in terms of, did you have like a sort of quota, like right today, we need to get like sort of eight hours of footage? No, there there wasn't a quota or anything. Um, I think going into it, we we had a lot of conversations around what's what's the best way to capture a story like this, where we're following six different people along a moving journey, and there were there were just so many logistical issues around it, and you know, at different points, we were talking about, well, do we rec- put a microphone on everyone and just let it roll all day long? Because a, bi- a big thing that we wanted to capture was the those little conversations, throwaway conversations that you, that people have mm. when they're walking that eventually open up into really intimate, deep conversations and musings on life. And and so we were interested in capturing that. And in the end, we decided, no, we'll we'll just mic them up. Uh, mic up one or two people at a time and yeah. we'd decide who that was the night before and then set out with them in the morning and, you know, I'd be filming, Fergus would be doing sound and we'd both chime in with questions if we had questions or what. a lot of it was just a general conversation and then as the morning wore on, I'd, I'd sort of stop to film some B-roll or a little yeah. detail or landscape or whatever it might be and Fergus and whoever we were following would continue walking and so I'd double time to kind of catch up and then I'd drop back again and catch up and, and eventually I'd I'd drop behind altogether and just um, 
do my own thing mm. and and eventually maybe come across somebody else and, and film them and, and mic them up and film film them. But um, yeah, as far as a, a quota, we we didn't we didn't have a, a set thing. It was just we wanted to film whatever was interesting and right. and so if if we thought that somebody was starting to chat about something interesting, we'd essentially just roll up and see where it went. Um, and then I'd the whole time I'd be gathering B-roll around that location and that area just in case we needed it to, mm. like just in case they did say something interesting and we wanted to build a scene around around that dialogue. The film is sort of, has sort of moments of sort of like talking heads in, in there as well where you will sort of sit, Sue will be sort of sat down and Julie will be sort of sat down and sort of like talking. Mm-hmm. And was that filmed... Um, on the trail as they were kind of walking or was that kind of positioned at the end to get those sort of moments of introspection from them? No, that was, we we did that all the way through at different right. points and maybe, um, you know, at definitely at points where if we weren't with somebody to see it on camera and, and we wanted to hear about it, mm. um, we'd, we'd sit them down at the albergue and, and, and get them to talk about it or even early on I think we we did some initial interviews towards the start of the Camino and then maybe midway and and then towards the end we we uh yeah did did some more but it was it was there was nothing really set in stone Mm. for this film it was sort of just what we thought was needed at the time and who was going through something that was really raw that day and Mm you know, could we get them on camera talking about it? And I'd like a question in terms of the cinematography. There are some lovely um, sort of like landscapes, aerial landscapes in the film. Is that something you shot with a with a drone? And, as, um, and if you did, is that something you've done before? Um, I did. And uh, no, I, I hadn't used a drone before. It, um, or, you know, I think we, we got the drone maybe two weeks before setting off and mm. so I'd taken it out on a quick quick trip um, to to play with it but um otherwise yeah we we jumped into it and we didn't have a lot of gear but we definitely had more gear than you'd like to hike with right. over 40 days so um, you know my camera itself was about six kilos and the backpack was about eight 16 or 17 kilos. And then Phoebe and Fergus had had their own packs of gear and charges and, mm. and what, but um, but yeah, the drone the drone stuff though was, you know, I I very much thought it was really important to the film to uh, to get that stuff just because the hand the camera work following people throughout it, it was such a physical mm. job that. Um, that the hand, the camera work is very much handheld and and has a bit of a shake to it, which we wanted because it you know right. brings that energy to a scene. But but then the film just needed those moments of taking a step back, mm. you know, to see those aerial views and have a breather and get get your bearings again on you know the sort of landscapes we were in. And then Fergus, I had a question about sort of being the sound recordist on location. I mean, what were some of the cha- um, challenges that you sort of like faced in terms of just recording people on a sort of like daily basis? Coming back to your earlier question about ratio um, or quota, mm. you know, the great thing about 
digital filmmaking compared to say 20 years ago is that you know we were able to roll up on everything you know it may have created problems later on in the edit right. um, but we use this process of uh, basically rolling up on hundreds of hours of, of audio conversations so each subject had a you know, lav or a lapel mic mm-hmm. um, attached to their clothing and I would just be there walking with them, asking as many questions as I can think of at the time. And in the end, we um, were able to transcribe a lot of the audio interviews um, through an automated service. So right. in the end, we just had hundreds of pages of script. Um, and then in the edit, if we wanted to control F or find you know, grief or, mm-hmm. or depression or trauma, we could go back to that, that spot in the, in the audio um, script and find that, that, you know, sound bite. So wow. it was really interesting yeah. as long as the audio was clean. Um, we had, you know, hundreds of hours of, of, you know, audio sound bites on hand to jump um, into the edit. And what we ended up doing was with a lot of Noel cinematography mm-hmm. um we were able to cut away and use the lovely kind of landscape shots as well as bring in this kind of, um, you know, overlay of audio to try mm. and marry them together. So, yeah, we were a bit, we were quite, um, yeah, we were kind of non, you know, traditional or we were sort of non-linear and where we jumped all over the place in the yeah. edit. Um, and, and maybe that's one of the criticisms of the film is we're not necessarily in a chronological order of this is day one, this is day 20, or this is day 37, which is the last day. Um, we just jumped all over the place. But it, from a story perspective, it made more sense to, to follow the, 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 the journey of the characters rather than the chronological order of the, the walk. You had, a, you had a nightmare of a time miking up everyone just because of yeah. the clothing, the type of type of clothing everyone wears tracking um you know just so much rustle and mm. and you know it's just terrible terrible for sound but um yeah it all came up came up great sound editors as well we had great post-production yeah. team including um you know some of the best technicians in new zealand who have worked on lord of the rings and the hobbit right. um so we were super lucky to get some um, government support at the mm. end of the process and um, and do our, our our post-production in New Zealand. Um, just jumping back to the point you made about in terms of it not being sort of like um, chronological, that's an interesting point because it's not something that I'd really considered when I was watching it. But I guess in terms of the documentaries you watch now, they do tend to be chronological or work to a very sort of like prescribed sort of like format but I guess when I was actually watching the documentary the first time um me personally watching I wasn't particularly awareing aware that it was sort of jumping backwards and forwards so I it was more um it was like you're definitely watching a journey rather than um than once trying to say that uh, of, of people rather than they're really working to a particular goal um which they are of course but it seems a bit more as you say sort of observational in that way a bit more naturalistic you know, we 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 didn't totally mix up everything. Like we had our we had our key points, but you know, at, at in the edit when we were discussing, we were having conversations around. Well, you know, do we need to make it 
chronological do we need to see this town on this day and then this town on this day and yeah in in the end we um we decided no for the for the point of the story it's mm. the the chronology of it's not important uh or like the specifics of of it which which all the camino you know there's some camino people that saw the film and and um criticized that because they right. wanted to see this specific town at that point um but for us it was very much more about being true to that emotional mm. um arc of of all our characters that they were going through what I was thinking also about this particular journey is like sort of like dealing with like the local businesses and locals who actually work and make their living off the Camino Santiago. I mean, you can make like a spin-off documentary about just them alone, really, of just these people, like, um, I guess, like walking past them on a continuous sort of like basis. Yeah, and I feel deeply saddened by what's happened, you know, with Spain mm. um, having one of the worst infection rates and in the world per capita and what the impacts are going to be for the next two years, maybe even longer for the Camino. I mean, some of these small little towns, um, Viana comes to mind, you know, I think will we'll really be decimated by, by the COVID-19 crisis. And um, uh, I guess we hope that, that they can recover mm. um, because they're almost 100% reliant on, on tourism and, and Camino tourism. Well, I was thinking about in terms of the sort of the tourist trade or, or walkers, um, for a better sort of word for them, and, inter and the interaction between them. It seemed, on, from what you filmed, it seemed sort of like very sort of like genuine and they seemed very happy to actually have those people like there and also like somewhat... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, everyone we came across uh, was just incredibly friendly and and really welcoming and 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 i guess that is their day-to-day -day. they're 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 talking to different pilgrims coming through every single day and a lot of the towns were smaller than i was expecting i i found um i don't know what i was expecting but there were definitely towns that where i'd sort of look around and think where is everyone um and but just because they were so small they were so quiet and and but but the locals that were there were, were incredibly friendly and and yeah really really welcoming and genuine and i just wanted to sort of touch a little bit on the um film's uh, composer uh tom um, i'm gonna get his name wrong mcleod mcleod yeah sorry uh, sorry yeah the film's composer tom mcleod um what kind of sort of like music cues did you have in mind for the film and how was it working with tom well, Tom, uh, unfortunately for us, um, or fortunately for the film, we we were able to have our world premiere in, in, in the US and it was quite a late acceptance and then a lot of the government finance came in quite late, right. which only gave us two weeks and a limited budget to brief Tom on what we needed. Um, we, we asked for about 15 minutes um, and he delivered the most incredible 15 minutes we could we could hope for um, but in the meantime we kind of had stretched the budget so we ended up sourcing some some library um, tracks mm. um, but but with Tom um, there were four key scenes uh, that he was um, involved with and 
yeah, as I said, to, for him to turn it around in, in two weeks with session musicians and late nights and everything coming together at the last minute was, was incredible. Um, Noel might be able to speak more about it. Um, it was kind of miraculous, wasn't it, Noel? Yeah, we. I, I was amazed that Tom could pull it all together so quickly, and we we were so lucky with that because, you know, we we had we had temp tracks in there during the edit, um, where, you know, it sort of spoke to the tone we wanted, and and a lot of it was string driven, which which Tom just does beautifully, um, and, but then the plan was always to get a composer to to go back through and, and rescore the entire thing. Right. Um, which, which you know, because of the timing and the budget, we, we couldn't quite do that at the end, but to have Tom to be able to at least go through and score, write some scores for the a couple of key themes in yeah. my moments, um, I thought just really made the film. So in the end we had, yeah, 50, about 15 minutes composition from mm. Tom and um, stock music and then there were a couple of licensed um, tracks, more famous tracks. And just in terms of funding, how much did you get from, I believe it was it Screen New Zealand that you managed to get some money from to sort of uh, help you with your documentary? We got the uh, completion funding through the New Zealand Film Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, they screened the film at, at Rough Cut, um, very rough a temp soundtrack and no colour grading, no sound editing and um, and luckily they, they loved the film and yeah. could see a, a pathway to audience and um, yeah, and we were kind of fortunate enough with, with the distributor Limelight's um, mm-hmm. kind of expertise it, it ended up being the second highest grossing documentary um, in New Zealand last oh, wow. year and we won a few awards mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it, it was a big success for the for the New Zealand Film Commission um, to put their their brand and, mm-hmm. and their support behind us. Um, and just as of yesterday, they were um, they were they, they were in a position to support um, our next film um, right. from a development standpoint. So we're we're very much in business with with the New Zealand Film Commission, and, and they've been they've been great. Um, and just sort of looking back on the whole experience of making uh, Camino Skies, what was the biggest lesson that you learned that you'll take forward from this documentary into your next project? You know, just finding someone to work with to bring a project to life. I think Fergus and I had, had worked on a couple of little things together, but before this I'd often just try and go it alone and do my own thing. And, um, you know, you, you come into something like a feature documentary and it's just such a marathon of work and there's just so many ups and downs and I forgot to mention before that like probably the my my Camino was making the film mm. like a lot of the same emotions that you get doing the Camino I I got out of finishing the film but um yeah I'd, I'd say the biggest my biggest takeaway was just to keep collaborating with people and not not try and not get stuck in your own little bubble doing it yourself. And I guess for me it was um, taking it from Noel just being able to get through um, such an arduous um, production schedule plus when we got into the Newport Beach Film Festival in, mm-hmm. in America, um, it was really a sprint 
um, what started off as sort of a, a slow marathon turned into a, a frantic sprint at the end. And Noel was going through a lot of personal issues with his father-in-law passing away, and right. um, and also the birth the birth of his daughter, his first child. So I was working remotely in New Zealand, finishing the film. Noel was dialing in, um, but we were able to celebrate. Um, at the end of the journey with um, with Julie in America with the world premiere and mm. and then also just the joys of being able to share it with not only Australians and New Zealanders but now in the UK on the 8th of May. Yeah. Um, that is the most rewarding thing for me um, is being able to share the film with as many people as possible. Um, and I just have like a, one final question for you both. What's your dream project if money and time wasn't an issue? <laughs> Good question. Um uh, I, don't, I don't know if there's any one particular subject, but honestly, a, a project like Camino Skies was has got to be up there. Like for me, having a camera and walking somewhere new every single day, traveling was, you know, that that is a dream in itself. And then to be able to tag along and follow people's stories and to, to have their trust um, and have them opening up to camera, it, you know, it just it doesn't often happen. And so if if more projects come up like that, I'll be quite happy. I, I'm, I'm excited by how long-form documentary, not just feature, but um, episodic. Mm. Um, we've seen the OJ series and then the Michael Jackson series, and now I'm completely hooked on The Last Dance, the Chicago Bulls um, series. I mean, I think that's brilliant that audiences can binge long-form documentary. Um, so, so as an avid sports fan and uh, New Zealand kind of rugby and cricket mm. fan, I'd love to make um, some retro retrospective historical long-form series that will, you know, we're able to, um, you know, or archive, unarchive, kind of, yeah, followed through from an early inception to the final um result would be would be a dream project for me but i just think working with with people like the six guys that we worked with on Camino guys is such a joy um and we're still you know sending memes and coronavirus um stupidity back mm. and forth so we're still we're still a tight unit and, and that's one of the biggest um rewards for for me for sure So there you have it. I had a great time chatting with Nolan Fergus and you can watch Camino Skies on Curzon Home Cinema right now. Just hit the link in the description box below. And don't forget to check out more great content on arubla.com from film reviews, video game hot takes and top 10 videos. And why not sign up and become a member and share your passion for all things entertainment on arubla.com today. And you can like and subscribe to I Was Just Wandering with Tom Salmon on Apple Podcasts soundcloud spotify and youtube and maybe leave a comment or review if you like and you can support the podcast on subscribestar at www.subscribestar.com forward slash i was just wondering with tom salmon right now thank you so much for listening i've been tom and i catch up with you next episode <laughs>